You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Welcome everybody. We've got a few visitors with us this week, and uh, so it's great to see you. We've got a special occasion this morning where we'll be welcoming Edgar and Adriana onto our deacons team. And uh, I'll be telling you a bit about the role and the responsibilities and the qualifications for a deacon this morning. So um, I haven't actually preached on any of this stuff before, so this is a first for me, but um, let's begin with prayer, shall we? Today, Lord, we gather to celebrate the releasing of Edgar and Adriana onto our deacons team. I pray, Lord, that not only will you teach us about that role, but you'll also challenge all of us about our service to your church. Would you open our eyes, our minds and our hearts today, Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, Amen. Before I get too far into my message, maybe I should define the term deacon, because it's one we don't hear very often in modern society. If you're outside the church, you probably don't hear it at all, except maybe as a name of a university, which is spelt differently, or a person's name, Alfred Deacon, who the university was named after. In the older and mainstream denominations, it's often a term used for an ordained minister, a member of the clergy, who's sort of one rung below the priest in the church. And uh, deacons in those church, churches wield some level of authority. <clears throat> Sometimes it's used as a title, such as Deacon Jones. Um, we don't go much on titles in this church, which suits me just fine. Um, but yeah, some churches do. They use it as a title. Biblically, though, deacon doesn't describe a position. It describes a function. It describes something that someone does. In fact, the word deacon is just a transliteration of the Greek word out of the New Testament, diakonos and related words, which simply means servant. The first time we come across one of these Greek diakonos words is in the life of Jesus. You remember Jesus was led into the wilderness and tempted by the devil for 40 days. And at the end of that time, angels came and ministered to him. Angels came and deaconed him. And the most important example we have of a deacon is Jesus Christ himself. Matthew twenty eight twenty twenty eight says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus used the same word there. He said, In effect, the Son of Man came not to be deaconed to, but the deacon to serve. So our best example of what it means to be a deacon is in the life of Jesus himself. This means then, regardless of, of whether a person is actually set aside in official capacity in a church as a deacon, that every believer is called to be a deacon in some sense. Every believer is called to serve their neighbours, their church, their family, their workmates. Having said that, though, it seems that in the Bible there is an office of a deacon, an appointment to a role in the local church that is recognised by the members of that church, and that's what we intend to do today, appoint Edgar and Adriana 
to the office of deacon. The Apostle Paul opens his letter to the Philippians with Paul and Timothy, servants, and that particular word there are slaves, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Later in Timothy, he goes on to describe the qualifications of a deacon, which we'll get to a little bit later on. But to get the background of the appointment for the first deacons, we need to go to Acts chapter 4, where it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things, any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. The early church grew so rapidly that they were almost overwhelmed by the numbers. In fact, it grew from 120 to 3,000 in one afternoon, or one morning, actually. To get some idea of what that explosive growth would be like, this room holds about 200 people if you cram it full of chairs. But imagine there were suddenly 3,000 people trying to get through that door, 15 times the number of what this room holds. That's the sort of growth the early church experienced on that first day. Compounded by the fact, of course, that the gospel is very attractive to the lost. It's attractive to the lonely, the poor, the widows, those down on their luck, as it should be still today. That also meant, though, that a lot of the newcomers to the church didn't have the means to support themselves. There was no social security, there was no salvage food banks in those days. So the widows and the poor came into the church and became rejects in the society for following after Christ and had no means to support themselves. So the new new believers dealt with this problem by being of one heart and soul and sharing everything they had with others. But seen though at the time there may have been a bit of favouritism going on because the Hebrew widows were being fed daily but the Greek widows were missing out on the distribution of food. Acts chapter 6 tells us about this. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase 
and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This passage is the prototype of the first deacons. It tells us a little bit about their appointment and their purpose. Acts 6.2, we'll go back to, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The first thing we see here is that the apostles recognised that the day-to-day tasks in the church were taking up valuable time that they should have been devoting to prayer and to the word. Let me say here that the most important task for any church leader is prayer. If your pastor doesn't have time to pray, he's neglecting his primary job. And he's not the only one who suffers though. You do too, believe it or not. For just as a shepherd in Bible times kept watch to protect his flock, so the shepherd that Christ has called to serve you, your pastor has a role in your spiritual protection. And that protection begins by by praying for you and praying for each and every one of you by name every week. You might not realise that your pastors do that for you. And I hope if you belong to another church, your pastor of that church is doing that. You might not recognise any tangible benefit from it, but let me assure you that stuff happens in the heavenly realms as your pastor prays and does spiritual warfare on your behalf. The second most important task he has is the ministry of the word. One of the requirements of an elder slash pastor is that he is able to teach the word of God is precious, as I'm sure you all agree. It's able to make you wise. It's able to teach you, to train you, to correct you, to conform you to the image of Christ as the Holy Spirit applies it to your life. So it's vitally important for all of us believers, not just the pastors and the deacons and other leaders, but everyone to spend time reading, studying, meditating and praying over the Bible. But it's the special calling of the pastor to study the word, to understand it and to make it known to you. But that takes time. And again, if your pastor doesn't have time to do that, you are suffering no less than he is. Now, I might add on a personal note here, that while I expected to be busy when I took over the leadership here, I had no idea of just how much stuff has to be done on a daily and weekly basis. Uh, Jobs small and large, some that just seem insignificant little things, but there's so much stuff that has to be attended to. Tony could attest to that. It's a challenging thing to find the time to do that. And I'm still coming to terms with all the various tasks and responsibilities and some I've been able to hand over to other people. Um, others, as I get my head around them, I'll do the same as well. But it is challenging to find the time to do all that, especially when you're working on the side, so to speak, 40 hours a week. (laughs) Pastoring a church is a full-time job 
whether you're working in the workforce or not, I've found. And uh, you've got to squeeze 40-hour weekend on top of that. But deacons are vital to releasing the pastor to do his job properly. Acts 6.3 it says, Therefore brothers pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Deacons have to have some sort of reputation preceding them. They must be men of good repute. Can we keep that up there please Paul? A person who is known to be a bit sneaky, a bit sly, a bit dishonest, a bit dodgy, has no business expecting to be a deacon or serving as a deacon because he's unqualified. There are some things he or she needs to get sorted out in their character before they're qualified to be a deacon. On the side note, you may have noticed that the original deacons were to be men of good repute. But we're proposing to ordain Adriana, a woman, onto the deacon's team. And we already have two other women on the deacon's team. So for those who are unaware who our deacons are, I'll introduce them to you a little bit later on. Um, But I'll get to the issue of women deacons in a little while as well. They are to be full of the spirit. A person who does not have a living and active and growing relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, again, has no business being a deacon. They must be growing in their relationship, not stagnant. And as we'll see soon, deacons can and hopefully will be much more than mere waiters on tables as the first group uh, were appointed to do initially. Two of the first deacons... Five of them we don't really know very much about after that, but two of the first deacons were powerful preachers and evangelists. And although neither of those are qualities that the deacons are expected to have, they're certainly a bonus. We'll be praying that Edgar and Adriana will be used by God in the same way as Stephen and Philip, as preachers and evangelists. They're to be full of wisdom, Cat Stevens sang nearly 50 years ago now, you're still young, that's your fault, there's so much you have to go through. Youth doesn't necessarily exclude a person from being a deacon, but there is wisdom that only comes with experience, with age, with going through tough times and having to push through the other side and depend on God. Unfortunately, age and experience don't guarantee wisdom though because there are some people who are no more mature at the age of 50 than they were at the age of 15. Acts 6.3 also says, whom we will appoint to this duty. Being a deacon is a duty. It's a responsibility. It's a commission that should be taken seriously. It's a voluntary, unpaid role, at least it is in this church, it is in most churches. But it's nevertheless a role that must be performed diligently. Because a deacon is a vital part of the machinery of the church. Deacons primarily are responsible for the day-to-day functioning of the local church. Things like helps and administration and organisation. They're to be problem solvers. They are to care for the needs of other people. 
the first deacons were appointed to ensure the smooth running of the local church and if deacons fail to be conscientious about their task, the whole church suffers. What's not listed in that uh, scripture there but is inferred by it is that deacons have an important role in the unity of the church. They're to keep an eye out for areas of tension or misunderstanding and to work to resolve the tension. They're to be sensitive to people who may be struggling financially and act to meet those needs. That might mean buying groceries for someone or organising a meal roster for others to cook for them or by taking up a collection to help ease their financial burden or arranging a meeting with a financial counsellor. The list could go on, I'm sure you get the point. And where there may be relationships under stress, deacons can help to smooth things out and bring reconciliation. That's a challenging thing to do when people are at loggerheads with each other, hence the need for wisdom. Elders and deacons have different roles in the local church, as we've just seen, but they have a collaborative relationship, a symbiotic relationship, you could say. Releasing deacons to serve and function in in specific roles and responsibilities in the church releases the elders to fulfil their responsibilities. The original example in Acts chapter 6 is anything to go by. The word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Sure, you would agree that that's a good reason to be releasing deacons to help the pastors and elders so that they can then focus on what they're called to do. Let's push on and consider the character requirements of deacons. We'll go through this line by line from 1 Timothy chapter 3. And as we go through them, you might like to compare yourself personally to these character qualifications because even though they're what's expected of a deacon, they are actually what's expected of every believer, regardless of the role they fill. Unfortunately, there's too many people who call themselves Christians who don't measure up to this. But in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 3, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, and not greedy for dishonest gain. They're to be dignified. doesn't mean they're to be stuffy and aloof and distant, but they're not to be ratbags. They're not to be idiots. They're to be honourable people, worthy of respect. And they must not be hypocritical, liars, deceivers, not double-tongued. What they say must be what they mean. They're not to be drunkards, publicly or otherwise. They're not to be closet drinkers. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a beer or a wine in the right setting, but alcohol must not become our master. And they must have a healthy relationship with money. There are times when deacons will be responsible for administering church finances. Money's a good servant, but a terrible master, someone has said. There's nothing wrong with earning good money. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. 
But our attitude to money and how we go about gaining money is critical as a Christian, especially as a deacon. The way we use our money is also important. Do we seek to live in the lap of luxury and get every desire met? Or do we seek to advance the kingdom with our finances? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, Paul wrote to Timothy. The love of money has caused many to wander away from the faith. Hence we read in verse 9 of 1 Timothy 3, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Know what you believe, but more importantly, make sure what you believe is biblical. Plenty of people get sidetracked, get into all sorts of strange ideas and theories about God, about salvation. Theories and ideas that have no biblical support. They get blown in a new direction with every wind that seems to blow through the church. And there's plenty of those different winds that blow through to distract us. Study the word. Find out what it says. Find out what it says about God. Find out what it says about you. Find out what it says about sin and salvation, about law and grace, and get it so deeply into your spirit that you don't waver. So you have absolute confidence and absolute security in your standing before God in Jesus Christ. Verse 10 tells us, let, let them be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. <clears throat> deacons aren't just chosen because they're available. They're not chosen just because they're good at a particular task. They must show evidence over a period of time that they're faithful followers of Jesus Christ. They must be known as people of integrity, as people who can be relied upon. Are they already serving without recognition? Some of you are already serving without recognition. If they meet these other qualifications as well, then they're good candidates to serve in an official capacity as a deacon. Verse 11 tells us their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. This parallels what we just read in verse 8 about being dignified, not double-tongued, etc. So is this another qualification for a male elder that his wife must measure up as well? Is Paul saying you have to look at the wife to determine whether the man qualifies as a deacon? There's some debate over this. Someone insists that deacons can only be male and therefore this is another test for the man. Um, but there's no consensus on this. There's plenty of opposing views. Their wives can legitimately be translated as women. Women likewise must be dignified. If that's so, then Paul is explaining the qualifications for a female deacon. Just as he said back in verse 8 when comparing deacons to elders, that deacons likewise, he also says in verse 11, wives likewise, suggesting now he's talking about a third category, elders, male deacons, female deacons. And that's the way I interpret it, hence the reason why Adriana is included today, along with her husband. 
My understanding of scripture is that while eldership is male only, deacons can be male or female. In fact, Romans 16.1 says pretty clearly, our sister Phoebe, a servant, which is a deacon, of the church at Cancrea. So assuming that's a correct interpretation, women are subject to the same qualifications as men. Wives likewise, women likewise. They don't get special treatment because they're women. They're held to the same standard. These qualifications, as I said, parallel what was expected of the man in verse 8. Verse 12, moving on. Deacons must each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Faithfulness in marriage is the outworking of a faithful heart. A person who is prone to affairs or who can't stay married for any length of time is telling the world more about themselves and about their character than I think they wish to, wish to reveal. How they raise their children and manage their household also speaks volumes about the character of the person. And all of these qualifications, you may have noticed, are to do with character. None of them deal with skills, abilities or training. They are all character. God wants people of character in every role in the church. Your abilities, your training, your skills are insignificant to God because he can use anyone to fulfil any role he likes provided your character is right and your relationship with Jesus Christ is right. Our most important service is to our family. If we don't get our family right, we've got no business being deacons or elders for that matter. Verse 13. Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. None of us should be serving for the sake of a reward. It's not really service if we expect to get paid for it. It's employment. But scripture also makes no secret of the fact there are rewards for serving Christ and serving his church. Just as there are rewards in heaven and sometimes on earth for following Christ, there's rewards for deacons who serve faithfully. We shouldn't be ashamed or frightened of that fact for our Heavenly Father delights to give us good gifts. The first reward is a good standing a good reputation and respect. It suggests honour from God and from man. Well done, good and faithful servant. There's also something about the mystery of how serving faithfully builds your own confidence and your own faith. I don't know if you can adequately explain how that happens, but think about how confident you become in your own knowledge and your abilities when you've been working at a particular job for any length of time things begin to come naturally to you. You become confident that you know the answers to the problems you face in the job. Apply that to serving in the church and especially to serving in the knowledge that your service magnifies Jesus Christ. And maybe we can see how serving helps us to grow in confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That's enough about the qualifications. I think 
all of you who know Edgar and Adriana would agree that they pass these tests with flying colours. The good question for each of us to ask at this point is how do I measure up against these qualifications? For all these qualifications of deacons should be visible evidence in all of us if we are genuine followers of Jesus Christ. Some of you may have noticed that I ignored the part of Acts chapter 6 where the apostles called all the believers together and told them, the church, to pick out some men to be the first deacons. You may wonder why I've announced to you that we're appointing Edgar and Adriana without giving you a say in the matter. And that's true, I didn't ask you for your suggestions. The New Testament I don't think necessarily requires that it be done that way. It's probable, although not certain, I must admit, that 1 Timothy 3, that Timothy himself appointed them. I spoke, the process was when I started thinking that these guys should be invited on. I spoke to Mel about it initially. I ran it by our deacons and leaders team to get their input and they all agreed, unanimously agreed, that they are outstanding candidates for the role. If you think that in the future there are any others among our people that will be good candidates for this, I invite you to talk to myself or to one of our deacons about it. Propose some names. I'll be interested to hear. Some churches have taken Acts 6 so literally that they've appointed seven deacons and seven deacons only to the church, regardless of the size of the church. So a church may be 15 people led by one elder, or it may be 15,000 led by a 50 strong eldership and still they only appoint seven deacons. I think personally that's misguided. But just as the New Testament writings talk about female deacons, they also don't specify the number to be appointed in any situation. I think we need wisdom to ensure we have enough to meet the current needs while also preparing for what God's doing in the future. That means sometimes the deacon's team may seem proportionately too large for the size of the church, but sometimes we need to be acting in faith that God's going to be doing something with our church that we need the extra numbers for. I'd also point out, I think I mentioned before, that many who serve here in City Edge Church function at least to some degree as deacons. There are many who serve regularly to make sure these meetings run smoothly, to ensure that the rest of us don't have to worry about setting up the chairs and putting out the signs and operating the overhead or getting the sound worked out. Deaconship is a service, not a position. So if you're already doing those things, you are already deaconing. And I thank you for your service. And if you're aware of a problem or you're dissatisfied with the way things are running, I suggest you spend less time complaining and gossiping about the problem and more time thinking about how you can improve the situation. For deacons and indeed every believer should be a problem solver, not a problem creator. The first deacons were appointed to deal with problems in the early church And at least two of them, Stephen and Philip, did much more than just work quietly in the background. 
they were responsible for some of the growth of the early church. According to the qualifications we've seen so far, deacons are not required to be great miracle workers, not required to be evangelists or Bible teachers. That's not found in any of the qualifications for a deacon. But I would ask all of you, and particularly Edgar and Adriana today, why not have a desire and an expectation that God will use you like he used Stephen and used Philip? Acts 6.8, you'll remember, says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. In Acts chapter 8, it says, The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Then Philip opened his mouth, it says a little later on, and, and this is in relation to the Ethiopian eunuch. He opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture that the eunuch was reading, he told him the good news about Jesus Christ. Stephen didn't last very long as we know. His ministry was so powerful, this ministry as a deacon was so powerful that he made a lot of enemies very quickly and they stoned him to death. But his death was a catalyst for the spread of the gospel and for remarkable growth. Philip likewise had a powerful ministry proclaiming Christ. He also ministered with signs and wonders. He introduced the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. He preached the gospel wherever he went and he became known as Philip the Evangelist who was one of the seven who had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Wouldn't it be wonderful, as a deacon, to be known as a Stephen or a Philip? It'd be nice to do a study on Stephen and Philip and their ministry as deacons. We don't have time for that today, unfortunately. But I want you to realise that being a lowly deacon, so to speak, in the church doesn't restrict you to serving behind the scenes. I'd like nothing more to see our deacons and indeed every single one of you operating as evangelists, as preachers and teachers of the word of God because we need more of them. We can never have too many of them. In a few moments we'll be praying over Edgar and Adriana to welcome them onto the team and we'll pray that God will use them and their other deacons and all of you in fact in these ways. So can I invite Edgar and Adriana to come up to the front now? Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.